Well, good morning, Randolph Street family, and happy Lord's Day to each of you. Thank you for coming this morning as a part of our gathering, and I trust that as you walk into this facility, pulled into these parking lots, prepared your heart this morning to enter into this most sacred time together as a church on the Lord's Day to bring worship and adoration to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, he welcomes you to that this morning. He does so by grace. So let us enter into his presence together as his people and bring right and holy worship to our God. Amen. May God grant that this morning for us. Grab your bulletins, a few announcements that we could just get out of the way quickly. I hear Evan Ham is with us this morning. Evan, it is so good to have you back. Evan has been gone for about 25 years, it feels like in flight school, and uh, he's back for a short period of time, right? And then off to three weeks, off to Birmingham, Alabama? Little, same place, Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Evan, it is good to see you, brother. We're glad you're with us today and would encourage you to continue to pray for their family as they walk through these unusual days. Speaking of prayer, uh, this evening, I would love to have 20 or 30 of you return here at 6 p.m. We're going to pray together. Pastor Tim is leading our session this evening. It's going to be kind of a ministry update slash prayer time as we pray for our network churches, pray for missionaries, pray for a variety of needs within our church family. That'll begin at 6. Uh, Tim has made a covenant promise. It'll be done by 7. Okay, so come. I'd, again, I'd love to have 20 or 30 of you out here this evening just seeking the Lord's face on behalf of his people here at Randolph Street, our partners together in ministry. Uh, maybe we can take time this evening and pray for our candidates who will be baptized next Sunday. It is Baptism Sunday, and we want to pray well for them, especially as we walk into this week. So come this evening, and we will hopefully take time and pray for them. A couple of other things just to throw on your plate. Our own Mission Together meal, we had one of those. The last time we had one of those was pre-COVID, uh, pre-2019 Christmas, so probably November or December uh, of 2019. So we're restarting those. It'll, it'll be uh, August the 1st. Uh, we would love to have you stay around. If, you, if you're not familiar with those, uh, we have a meal here afterwards, and you give money to eat, okay? But all the money you give goes to a Christ-centered nonprofit. Uh, we do these throughout the year. We give thousands of dollars away. Every penny you give goes directly to these nonprofits. We've supported Hope for Appalachia. In the past, we've supported Crossroads Pregnancy Care Center, others, our adoption fund. Uh, so August the 1st, stick around, enjoy a meal with one another. I'm so excited to get back into some normal schedule here. Speaking of which, training hour begins August the 8th. Uh, we have a number of classes that we offer for our children. Our adults will be combined in this room for a month as we walk through the second London Confession, which I'll say more about later. Uh, other things to note there, please uh, make yourself aware of those. Keep those before you. Okay, all that's out of the way. Let's take just a few moments. Let's quiet our hearts before the Lord. This is, uh, this is our privilege now as God's people to come into his presence together. So let's rightfully prepare our hearts as we approach our God this morning. Thank you. 
Please stand with me, if you would, and let us hear the word of God call our hearts to worship this morning from Psalm 84. The psalmist of the inspiration of the Spirit of God records these words for us. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. The Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen.
trust as we have been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism this past year that the logic and the, uh, the way in which it unfolds has been a blessing to you, a tremendous way to learn truth. A few weeks ago it stated what we believe and it laid forth the Apostles' Creed and from there that has become a template of these questions that we've done over these past weeks. Question 45, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Question 46. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? seriously contemplate the truth of the gospel, the glories of the gospel, the impact that it has in our lives. We are constantly overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise and worship to you. Father, we are grateful that in the gospel, not only did Christ die for us, but he was raised again. Lord, not only was he raised and thereby sealing our justification. But, O oh, Father, it granted to us that we, in union with Christ, have already been seated in the heavenlies. And, Lord, that someday, physically, our bodies shall come forth from the grave. And, Lord, that we shall be resurrected like Christ and dwell in his presence forever. Lord, those things are just amazing. To think that Christ has ascended and there is interceding for us. There is our advocate. There watching over us. Lord, those things are such a great source of security and comfort and blessing to our heart. Father, help us to learn well the truths of your word, that they might be an anchor to our souls. I pray, Father, that we would use your word as a sword against the enemy. Father, that we would use your word as a rock. Lord, I pray that our parents would be diligent in teaching these truths to the children of Randolph Street, that, Lord, they might have a solid foundation as they grow. Lord, we look to you this day. We seek to truly honor you with worship. We trust that as we lift up the truths of these songs before you, the scriptures that are read, every aspect, that, Lord, that we shall worship you in spirit, that our hearts will be right with you, and, Lord, that we would worship you in truth. To your name be glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. song. 
now to the reading of God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. 
Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. A reading from the epistle to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let's stand and sing again with thankfulness in our hearts to God.
Sean and worship team for leading us this morning. If you would have your copy of the Holy Scriptures before you and open to Colossians chapter 2 for the reading of our sermon text this morning. We are on part two of the second part of our summer series as we focus squarely on baptism today and we are walking into a difficult text and hopefully that difficulty will keep you alert and engaged this morning. Let us hear from Colossians, beginning at chapter 2, verse number 6. We will read through verse 15. And just to get your hearts centered on this, 11 and 12 are the sermon text this morning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let us pray together. Well, Father, this is your word and this is your people. So by your spirit, would you accomplish your glorious and good purpose in each hearer of your word this morning? God, by your spirit, would you awaken our sleepy minds and give us attentive ears to engage with your word this morning, to let this word filter into our hearts, those of us especially who have been baptized, those who will be baptized our next Lord's Day gathering. Lord, let the truthfulness of what baptism is and what it signifies and what it points us to, these glorious gospel truths, let that settle into our hearts this morning and let us, as a response to these truths, just rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let our souls rest in you today and the promises that you've given us in Jesus. Lord, that's a lot to ask for. But we ask with faith, knowing that you 
through your spirit are ready to work in your people here this morning for your glory and for their good. And Father, I would pray that if there are any unbelievers who are joining us online or joining us in this auditorium today, that even as we move into a subject that is distinctly and specifically given for Christians, Lord, that they would see what you intend by baptism, this, this visual picture of the gospel that draws us in to what happens to the sinner. Let, let those who may be unbelievers among us or online, oh, let them see the beauty of this picture and yearn for that by your grace. Long, long to have their sins forgiven and cleansed. Long to be united to Christ, to experience circumcision of, of our hearts. Oh God, would you let these truths just rest deeply on their hearts and by your spirit, grant them faith and repentance today. So Lord, bless our time together in your word, our time in a few moments at these tables. We ask that for your glory in Christ's name, amen.
Thank you, my brother, for serving us this morning. Well, with your Bibles open, pens, notepads, handy, we're going to walk into a difficult subject together this morning. Before I do, let me acknowledge a few folks with us today. We have some Valentines with us. We love Tim and Becky here, and we thank God for Tim and Becky's ministry among us. But if you want to you see their ministry and their life, you, you look at their kids. Uh, all four of their children have such a deep love for Christ um, and serve our Savior, and we are so thankful for them. Um, I won't even try to name all. I'll just name the most important two out of Mendon Paul uh, and the rest. Uh, but we're, we're thankful you guys are with us. Jack and Mendon will be back with us next week. You guys might as well just become members here, right? Their daughter will be baptized here next Sunday morning. We're so excited about that. So last Sunday, I kind of poked you a little bit with two questions to wake you up right at the beginning of the sermon. Why do we here at Randolph Street not baptize babies? We're talking about the sacraments. Why do we baptize, to, to kind of bridge off that question a little bit, why do we baptize only those who confess faith in Christ? Maybe to spin that in a positive way. The second question I asked last week is, this is the, the reason I chose the text this morning. Why does the Old Covenant incorporate infants into the covenant people but as I argued last Sunday morning from Hebrews chapter 8, the, the new covenant does not. So those, those are pressing questions for us. And as I said to you last Sunday morning, we want to think well about the sacraments. I'm going to come back to a pastoral reason for that in just a moment. We want to think well about the sacraments. We, we want to recognize that these ordinances or sacraments, they, they are challenging for us to lay hold of, but... The, the blessing for us is to understand and to know what these truths represent for us, to embrace that, and to see God use them as a means of grace in our lives. Last Sunday, I presented to you two primary reasons why we do not baptize infants here at Randolph Street. Here they were. Number one, the nature of the new covenant. Number two, the text and practices of the New Testament church. There's two reasons. Last Sunday, I was focused solely on the first reason. The second one, I'm, I'm not going to skip completely. We're going to come back to that. Well, not completely because I'm Colossians today. We're going to come back to that when we begin the book of Acts in just a few weeks. I'm going to take a whole week when we begin the book of Acts, and I'm going to look at the issue of baptism, and we're going to trace it through all of Acts and see the reality of the new covenant played out in the context of the church. But last week, my point was to illustrate the massive difference that exists between the old covenant and the new covenant. We did that by looking at Hebrews 8 and the recitation of the, the author there of Jeremiah chapter 31. As we looked into that, what we saw, I hope, what you agreed with, is that what only some experienced in the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, all experience. All who are members of the new covenant receive, if you will, the, the blessings of the new covenant. And you remember those blessings last week, the, the new heart, 
that we would know God and our sins would be forgiven. All who participate within this new covenant experience all of the blessings of that covenant. And therefore, this was the argument last week, therefore, they are the ones who should receive the signs of the covenant, namely baptism and the Lord's table. The new covenant is not a mixed people unlike the old covenant. It's not doesn't consist of believers and unbelievers together in a covenant. All who know the Lord are in the covenant, and all who are in the covenant know the Lord. And they experience the fullness of the blessings promised by God through the prophets. They experience the fullness of those blessings. Therefore, they should receive the signs of the covenant. If you are in the new covenant, and Dr. Um, right yesterday, I think it was yesterday, maybe it was Friday, I don't know. In his class, he taught here through the weekend, did just a really good job of bringing this out in, in the New Testament. That if you are in the covenant, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are in the covenant. And if you are in Christ, you receive all the blessings of being in Christ. Therefore, you receive the sign of the covenant that Christ has brought forth through his death. Like this morning, you're going to walk up and our elders, they're going to say to you, this is his body and this is his blood. And the Tim's going to come up, he's going to read the scriptures for us. This, this is a new covenant in my blood. You, you experience the blessings of that covenant. So therefore, you partake in the signs and the sacraments and the ordinances of the covenant. Now, if you weren't here last week, I don't often say this because I don't often like my own preaching, but go back and listen because we did a lot of work to define terms like pedo and credo and ordinance and sacrament. And we just, we kind of dug deep into some of those things to think through them well. Uh, I gave some warnings to you because we love and respect those who differ with us within the realm of orthodoxy. We, we love and respect those who have a different view of the new covenant, we think they are wrong, and that's okay. They think we are wrong, and that's okay. They love the gospel, we love the gospel, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we want to approach this subject with humility, understanding to the best of our ability what God has set forth for us in his word. And, and what, what I'm preaching to you is this, by the very nature of the new covenant, that is what shapes, the, the nature of the new covenant, that's what shapes, should shape our view of the signs of the covenant, the sacraments. Now, let me come back to the pastoral. These two sermons don't even try to take notes, but there's not a lot of organizational thought to them, okay? So you're going to chase with me for a little while. We're going to get to Colossians, I think, on page five of my sermon notes, okay? We'll get there. Here's the pastoral side of this series. It's short. I think we're going to go about four weeks. Next Sunday, we'll deal with the Lord's table. Here's what's pressing in on my heart as a pastor of Randolph Street. I, I want us to have, and I think we felt at this in the past, we being Baptist. I want us to have a biblical and healthy theology of the ordinances or of the sacraments. Okay, I, want, I said last week, I don't want to say more than what the scriptures say, but I, I do not want to say less than what the scriptures say. 
I want us to have a good, full, biblical view of the sacraments. And here's why. It's not just so that we can have these categories in our mind and get on line and argue with those who differ with us. That's not the reason we want to have a good, full, biblical view of the sacraments. We want to have this healthy view of the ordinances so that we can have a proper experience of the sacraments and the grace that God intends for us in these holy moments. That's what, we, that's what we're striving for here as we think about these two commands. Go back to last week. These two unique commands that the Lord has placed before the church that we are to continue in until he returns, namely baptism and the Lord's table. We want to understand them. We want to understand what they, what they speak to us. And I'll say that in a moment. What they speak to us so that we can have a proper experience when we come to these tables, when we observe the baptism, when somebody's baptized, and I can experience the grace God has intended for me through this. That is so important to me as a pastor. I ended last Sunday with this point. And I don't think we think about the sacraments like this. This has been helpful to me to think this way in the last number of years. In the sacraments, God is making a declaration. I've said this to you a number of times in the past. At these tables, God preaches to us. We, we think often of the ordinances as something we do. Like, I come to the table. I get baptized. I do. I do. And, and there's truth to that. But I think we way often miss is what God is doing. And that changes our experience. The Lord has given us these two commands. That's it, just two. And Dr. Wright walked through that. He's given us two clear commands, baptize, table. And in these two commands, these unique commands, he engages our senses. In, in no other sphere or realm do we do, we do this. Next week, in bat, we're going to roll that bathtub over here. We're going to fill it with physical water. And people are going to actually get into it, and they're going to get wet. And we're going to get every bit of them wet, okay? That's for acts later, an immersion. But there's a physical act that's going to take place. That person is going to go under the water, they're going to come out of the water. In just a moment, you're going to come to these tables, and you're going, to, you're going to hold a cup, and you're going to hold the bread, and we're going to say to you, this is his body, and this is his blood, and you're going to stick it in your mouth, and, and all of your senses are going to be engaged in that moment. And that's what God has intended for these exercises, these holy exercises of our souls. It engages the whole of our being. And this is what the signs of the covenants do. I mean, think of, think of a rainbow. The sign given to Noah, the covenant that God established with him. Just a few weeks ago, I walked out on my back porch, and we had a double rainbow over Charleston. And I stood on my back porch, and I looked at it. And it never fails for me, as a Christian, as someone who believes the Bible, when I see a rainbow, I'm swept up into this view of God and who he is. He's faithful. He never changes. And, and what rises in my, my soul when I see rainbow is, is hope. And everything down here is messy and chaotic, but, but there it is. There's the promise of God. It calls me to that, and it engages my senses. I don't, I'm not good with colors and charts and all that stuff, but and you look up, and it's just so beautiful, what, and it's, it's physical for me. I see it, my eyes, and I'm, I'm drawn into it. That's what signs do. One writer, a Presbyterian, mind you, says this. God has not only verbalized his promises to us, but he's visualized them for us. 
Most covenants have signs. And these signs are a way of God telling to us his story of salvation. That's what the table is. That's what baptism, it's God declaring to us. It's it's God bringing us into the story and letting us for a moment sit there with our senses engaged and know and see and smell and taste and hear. What's the other one? Touch. The promises that he's given to us in Christ. That's the beauty of this. This isn't just tradition or obedience for obedience sake brothers sisters you come to these tables this morning and God is going to fill your soul with the promises he's given to you in Christ that's why the second London talks about coming and having your souls nourished as we feed upon Christ and the promises that God has given to us. So so there's a pastoral side of this, and I want us as a church to make sure we are seeing this in the scriptures, we're embracing this reality. We're closer to Colossians. One more comment. I want to say a quick word about baptism, because that's what we're moving into on this particular sermon. Without embarrassment, the New Testament presents baptism as intimately tied and connected to conversion. Okay, what I mean by that, when you read the New Testament, we're going to get this in Acts, the writers do not blush, and they intimately, intimately connect baptism to conversion. Now, we know as reading the whole of Scripture, baptism does not save Paul could not be clear about that reality. Baptism does not save. If you want to know how a sinner stands right before God, you go to the text that tell us that. And in Romans, Paul is explicit. The sinner stands right before God by faith in Christ and Christ alone. There's no acts of obedience that bring us to God or merit for us righteousness. But in the New Testament... Baptism will be the picture that writers will often use to kind of capture the whole of our conversion experience. Baptism is the fundamental expression of the sinner. And it captures the whole of their conversion experience as they stand before God by grace through faith in Christ. Doug Moo, in his... One of his commentaries, I think this is Romans chapter 6. I, this is helpful to me when I'm reading the Bible. Moo is helpful. He says, when you, when you read the apostles and their use of the word baptism in their writings, he said, understand that, that this word is used for shorthand for the whole of the Christian conversion experience. Right? So it's kind of shorthand. I mean, it's, it's kind of the basic command, right, of what Christ gave to the church. We go into all the world, we teach, observe, Baptize. I mean, it is, it is the core basic command of the church and our response to Christ. D.A. Carson says in his commentary in Romans 6, the early church could scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or instructed. I mean, this, this, is, this is what we're stepping into here, right? When you read the New Testament, there, there is no disciple who's not baptized. That's a foreign thought. To come to faith in Christ is then to be baptized. 
And these things are intimately connected to the New Testament. This, don't hear me saying a person has to be baptized to be saved. But hear me saying when the apostles write, as they, as they walk us through baptism, you're going to hear this kind of language. We're going to get to this in Acts. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. All right, that's, for us Reformed folk, that, I wish Peter would have said that differently. Or later in Acts 22, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. But you hear that baptism is, and we're going to see many more of this, baptism is closely connected to the idea of conversion. It, it is the picture that, that captures, if you will, our conversion experience. It is the basic command. It is the basic response of the sinner to God, not an altar call. It's funny how we've replaced, this is part of the reason for this, we've replaced a proper response to the gospel with man-made traditions. A proper response to the gospel is baptism in the Lord's table. This is how God has us respond. Well, believe it or not, we're at Colossians. So, Bible's open. The reason I chose this text, and if I can spend the next 15, 20 minutes in this, is because this is the one place in the New Testament that connects the sign of the Old Covenant, circumcision, with the sign of the New Covenant, baptism. Now, hold off on making any assumptions there. So we want to press into this question that is often set before us that for those who baptize children, they receive the sign of the old covenant, circumcision. Therefore, they should receive the sign of the new covenant, baptism. And the scriptures never abrogate that, never change that. So the New Covenant community, in their minds, and I'm being fair to them, I think, it's made up of believers and unbelievers, law keepers and law breakers, covenant keepers and covenant breakers. But this is the one place, in the New Testament at least, we can come and see these two thoughts brought together. So let's go back to verse 11. Paul writes, In him... You also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith, key word there, the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now recognize as we step into verses 11 and 12, we're, we're, we're midstream in an argument that Paul has been building as he seeks to struggle against false teachers and their entry into the, the church here. But if you go back and read verse number 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. It's possible that some of this is Judaizers coming in, pushing circumcision, which is why Paul's going to pick up on this in just a moment. But in this text, as I just read, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul connects the sign of the Old Covenant, circumcision, with the sign of the New Covenant, baptism. And that connection is incredibly helpful. Let me just put my cards on the table. It's not a direct connection. It's kind of like Route 60. It's a winding connection, and it gets us to where we're going, but it gets us there in a way we didn't expect. And before I step into these verses, here's the bottom line. 
Colossians 2 teaches us that if you are in Christ, your heart has been circumcised. If you are a member of the covenant, your heart has been circumcised. All who are in Christ have experienced this spiritual reality. So let's just pick our way through these verses for just a few moments. There's a positional reality that Paul always keeps before us. He never loses sight of this because it is fundamental to our faith. Everything that is good for us as Christians, everything that we would say grace and mercy is related to this reality, this positional reality that we find in verse number 11, that you find all the way through Colossians, in Christ, in him. This theology is central to Paul. It's important as we think about baptism because that's, that's who he's speaking to here, those who are in Christ. And he's going to link baptism to that positional reality in just a moment. But going back to my overview of the Bible last Sunday morning, this is, this is crucial language for us as Christians. You are either in Adam. This is how Paul looks at the whole Bible. This is how Paul looks at all of history. You are either in Adam and condemned, or you are in Christ and righteous. That's how Paul sees all of humanity. That's why I said to you last Sunday morning, your biggest problem, if you're not a Christian here this morning, is your dad, and that's Adam. That's who, that's who you are in. And positionally, when you're in Adam, we are guilty before God, we are sinners before God, and we are condemned. But Paul here brings these readers into this new reality that they experience by grace through faith. And that is that in Christ theology. They have been united to the head of this covenant, the new covenant, which is Christ. And because of their union with him, and listen, this is for you, because of your union with Christ, all of the blessings of the covenant flow to you. Right? So it's not because of you. It's not because of what you have done. It's because you are united to Christ. You are positionally in Christ. And now all of the blessings of the covenant, they are yours because of Christ. Now, those who are in Christ, as Colossians is going to put out before us, have experienced an inward work. So look down at your Bibles. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. So Paul's going to bring this old covenant sign, circumcision, to our minds. You can't read this text without thinking about the old covenant sign because he uses the word, you were circumcised. Right? So, so immediately, that's what comes to the reader's minds as we enter into this passage. But as quickly as circumcision enters our mind, Old Testament, we see a distinction that, that Paul makes here, right? Look at what he says. He says a circumcision that is made without hands. So as quickly as this Old Testament imagery comes to our mind, Paul then goes the other way and says, hey, this is a circumcision that is made without hands. And in verse 11, he's going to call it the circumcision of Christ. So now we're just, he's distinguishing out for us that Old Testament experience and this new covenant experience. That little word for phrase there in verse 11, Christ, the circumcision of Christ, I think he's just emphasizing this is, this is the circumcision that Christ has performed, not man, not religious leaders. This is a circumcision that is performed by Christ. And this circumcision, because we preach through Hebrews, we know is better. 
because everything related to Jesus is better when it comes to the old covenant. He's a better priest with better promises and a better sacrifice. And if I could make this Hebrews, it's a better circumcision. So let's talk about the old covenant side of this just quickly because that's what should be running through your mind before we get to what Paul's actually taking us toward here. In, in the old covenant, under the old covenant, male children were physically circumcised and this marked them as a member of the covenant people of God. It was primarily ethnic. The, the whole, off, I'm gonna come back to that in a second. It was a theocratic people and this physical sign performed on male children marked them out as the physical people of God. If one was to be a part of the nation, one had to be circumcised. And the sign was applied to all males. And faith was not an issue in this old covenant sign. And what I mean by that is this. It, it did not matter if parents of the children who were being circumcised, it did not matter if they were believers or unbelievers. That wasn't the issue. They were to bring their children for this right of the covenant to be circumcised. It's a mistake to think about all the children or all the parents of the old covenant who brought their children to be circumcised. It's a mistake to think that this was an expression of faith. Many of them were unbelievers, maybe most of them. If you were born or if you were brought into Israel, you receive the sign of circumcision, believers and unbelievers alike. Circumcision obviously has a physical component. It marked the people out physically, but it had a spiritual component. We're going to see that in just a second. There was something happening in this physical act that spoke to a spiritual need, the need of cleansing and forgiveness, the need of a new heart. This issue of circumcision was not easy in the church. The early church wrestled with this. When we get into the book of Acts, as when you read through the epistles, this issue of circumcision keeps coming back over and over and over in Galatians and here in Colossians, other texts, and, and what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Because you had Jews and Gentiles coming together to form the church, the, 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 the people of God, this new covenant community. And the issue is that Jewish believers thought Gentiles must be circumcised. This is what they're arguing in Acts chapter 15. They must be circumcised. They must obey the law of Moses. So what happens in Acts is a, a, a council is called together consisting of apostles and elders. And what's interesting after that council comes together is they did not require Gentiles to be circumcised. That was their conclusion. They did not require Gentiles to be circumcised. Now, let me step in for a moment just to poke at my Presbyterian friends. In Acts 15, it was the ultimate opportunity for the apostles to say, hey, they don't need to be circumcised because baptism has replaced circumcision. It was the ultimate opportunity for the church to make that type of transition if that is actually what was happening. We would say, no, that's not what was happening. The primary issue in circumcision, spiritual side, for Abraham's descendants, 
was to point out the problem of their uncircumcised hearts. This is, listen to these texts, Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the command. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Or the prophet Jeremiah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. You hear that? The problem of this old covenant people, though they had received the physical sign of circumcision, they had not had their hearts circumcised. This physical sign pointed to a spiritual reality, a spiritual need. And we're going to see that in a moment in Colossians. The promise of God is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. You're going to hear that echo in Acts chapter 2 in just, just a few weeks. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, that's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse number 6. That is fulfilled in the new covenant. The Lord will circumcise your hearts. And you hear that language? You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul that you may live. This is a work that God is going to do. And I think that's what Paul is picking up on here in Colossians chapter 2. Circumcision pointed toward a need, a need for cleansing, a need for a new heart. It pointed, pointed toward the need of uh, this inward circumcision. The problem is the old covenant was never designed to accomplish that. But instead, ultimately, circumcision, as with every other echo and shadow in the Old Covenant, points us to Christ. That's the beauty of this. Now, I want you to wrestle with that. Don't, don't just listen to me. I want you to wrestle with that. I, I, I commended to you last week a chapter by Stephen Wellam in, in the book. I forget the name of the book. It's blue. It's about baptism. Um, his book on the covenants and baptism. It's, it's so helpful. But all along, Every male child circumcised ultimately was pointing us to Christ and the circumcision that only Christ could grant. So back to your text, if you will. Paul evokes this Old Testament physical right to bring us to a spiritual reality. Right, look back down at your text, if you would. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He brings that to mind, that Old Testament right, to say to these Christians, all of them, he's not distinguishing here, all of them, God has done a miracle in you. He has performed a circumcision. It is outside of us. It's not done by us. This is something that is brought up on us. The spiritual circumcision. God has brought forth for his church. If you're a Christian here this morning, your heart has been circumcised. I know that's, that's odd language. I, listen, I get that. That's odd language. But when you build on the Old Testament and what it was pointing to, and now you come to Colossians and Paul says to you, in, if you're in Christ, your hearts by Christ have been circumcised. You recognize the significance of this for you. The church is the fulfillment of all the, the old covenant people of God anticipated and longed for. 
Theologians will use a fancy term, we are the eschatological people of God. It's a simple, a complex way of saying a simple truth. We are the fulfillment. What God is doing now in the new covenant, we are, the, we are what has been anticipated through these acts and Old Testament rites. And now it is fulfilled. We together, all of us, because we know God, we have had our hearts circumcised. So what happens when you have your heart circumcised? We'll look down at your text in verse number 11, by putting off the body of flesh. So he's, again, he's picking up on this imagery, the physical side of it. Spiritual circumcision results in the body of flesh being cut away, if you will. If you were here when we preached through Romans in chapter 6, this is almost identical language to what Paul is going to argue there. So unlike physical circumcision... This spiritual circumcision brings forth an inward transformation. You put off the body of flesh, a new person. There, have been, there has been a decisive end to your old self, and now you have new life. I mean, that's what, that's what this is pointing to, this circumcision performed by Christ up on our hearts. The end result is that our old person is dead, and now we have new life in Christ. Or to let your eyes linger down to verse number 13 to see the kind of fullness of this. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but here it is. God made alive together with him. This is what God has done. He's made us alive. What does that include? Our sins are forgiven. Our debt is canceled. I mean, that's, that's what this is. This is what has been performed upon you and in you by Christ. You are alive now. And a part of that includes having your sins forgiven, having your debt canceled. Listen, there's nothing like, in my opinion, there's nothing like standing before a holy God and having my sins forgiven and cleansed forever. There's nothing like that. I'm clean the debt that I carried before this holy and righteous God is canceled forever. Now, all of that to get us to the next verse, Paul finally brings baptism into view. Having been buried with him in baptism, you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Just a couple of comments about baptism here. Baptism portrays my union to Christ. Hear the language? Been buried with him, been raised with him. One of the fundamental realities of water baptism is that it signifies my union to Christ, that which Paul started with back in verse number 12. And listen, let's get this right as Baptists. You think we would get this right, but sometimes we don't. Baptism is the signifier of my union with Christ. It's not a signifier. It is the ultimate signifier of my union with Christ, a, a symbol, if you will, of my union with Christ. That I have died with him and I have been raised with him. In this text, the one who has been baptized has experienced spiritual circumcision, is alive with Christ. So, 
Baptism doesn't anticipate what is going to happen in the participant. Baptism reflects upon the real and genuine experience of the sinner before God. We have been united to Christ in his death. We have been raised with Christ through his resurrection. And now my dead heart is alive to God. Baptism is preaching that truth to us as the church. And that happens, if you look down at verse number 12, through faith. There's the instrument, there's the, there's the turn, there's the heart of this. It's through faith, but baptism proclaims this reality for us, that my heart has been circumcised, I have moved from dead to being alive in Christ, I am united to my Savior, what is his is now mine. Tom Schreiner says, baptism is the initiatory event in the lives of believers, and it represents death to the old way of life and birth to a new way of life. That's why I can't wait till next Sunday. I learned this from Pastor Tim, and I said this last, last, two, last Sunday, 1995, when I watched him baptize someone for the first time, and he took them and placed them in water, buried with him in the likeness of death, raised to walk in the newness of life. I'll never forget that as long as I live, because not Tim, but God was preaching to my soul of what I've experienced in Christ. And next Sunday, we're gonna take those candidates and we're gonna place them under the water. And in doing so, we're recognizing that because they're united to Christ, they've been buried with Christ. And when they, were, when they died with Christ, the old man, the old way, the old creation dies. And when they're raised, they are new creatures in Christ. And, and life is before them. Baptism is that event that represents for us the church, that old way to that new life. Baptism declares for us that we are in Christ, that we have died with him, that we have been raised with him, and now we experience the forgiveness and cleansing of sin. All of that, all of those blessings are because we are united to Christ and baptism preaches that to us. Now, I think for some of us, me, baptism, we often say it's just a public profession of faith. And it is. It is that. But it's much more than that. And church, this is why I'm, we're, we're walking through this series. We want to understand these kinds of passages like Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and see these things play out in the book of Acts so that we can have this healthy understanding of the sacraments, of the ordinances, so that next Sunday we walk into this room, our experience is guided by truth. And we experience the grace that God intends for us. Let me give you just three concluding thoughts before we come to this table. Three quick thoughts. If you're a Christian here this morning, next Sunday, when individuals are being baptized, here's what I want to challenge you toward. Recall to your mind your own baptismal experience. All right, so participate next Sunday. You're here, you watch an individual be baptized, you, you recall to mind, mine was in this old muddy creek out in Go Town. It was so muddy, if the pastor would have dropped me, they probably wouldn't have found me for a few miles downstream. But recall that to mind. 
when you entered into the waters of baptism and, and God declared you united to Christ, buried and raised with him in the newness of life. Let, let that serve your own soul, be it five years ago or 50 years ago. Number two, come next Sunday and express your love for the sacraments. In just a moment, express your love for the ordinances. These are not secondary realities for the church. These are, these are primary for us to engage in together. And in just a moment, we're going, to, we're going to come to these tables. And remember, as you come to these tables, what God is declaring to you, the Christian, in light of what Christ has done, come and rejoice in that. Love the signs, love the sacraments, love the ordinance. I hope if anything comes out of this little series that we're walking through this summer, is as we have walked through five weeks of gospel, we walk out of this loving the signs that God has given us to preach the gospel to the church. Lastly, next Sunday, as those individuals prepare, and you've got to come tonight. I should have had their names all here, but I'm not going to try that. Uh, come tonight. We will pray for them, but take intentional time this week to pray earnestly for these individuals who will be baptized. Um, I'm not going to say their names right now out of fear of missing one, but just pray earnestly that those who walk into these waters next Sunday, that their hearts and their souls would be captured by this kind of gospel truth so that they wade into the waters, they understand what God is doing in this moment for them. This is why we take time to prepare people for baptism. We want them to understand these truths so that when they come into these waters, it is a meaningful experience for them. So pray for them this week. Set your heart on it so you can experience what, what you've walked through as an individual being baptized. Love this moment together as a church and pray for these individuals as they prepare to follow this basic command of Christ for his people. All right? May God grant us this week uh, that kind of heart. I'm going to invite our elders now to come to these tables and begin to prepare them. Let me get the awkward out of the way here. We're going to serve a little differently this morning. Our elders, they'll have gloves on. They're going to be handing to you your cup and your bread. Most importantly, as they hand the cup and the bread to you with gloves on, um, they're going to say what we always say here. Hear these words. This is his body. This is his blood for you. Hear those words of grace, and may they lodge into our hearts and minds. And as we come to these tables, may our souls as Christians feast upon the gospel promises that God has given to us in Christ. If you're not a believer here this morning, this is not a time for you. But listen, if you've been here for this series at all this morning, obviously, the gospel is on display here for you to watch, see, just sit, listen, hear, Watch as Christ's command for his church is obeyed and we partake of this bread and of this cup signifying Christ and his sufficiency for us. We commune with our risen Savior. Just listen here, Christians. Let's boast in Christ now and let's rest in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we prepare now to come to these tables, we've said a lot of words these last 25, 35 minutes.
let now what our ears and mind and hearts hear is your promises to us in Christ. Let us come to these tables with hearts that are pure, hearts full of faith, knowing our hope is Christ and Christ alone. May that be the very testimony of our hearts as we walk to these tables this morning. We hear our elders say to us, this is his body and this is his blood. May we, may we be reminded with clarity of what Christ has done and may that call us upward this morning to your right hand to commune richly with our Savior as we partake of these elements. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's table. Please now use it as your people gather, as your people celebrate this moment. Please use it for our good and for your glory. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Deacons, you can begin dismissing.
as we participate in the table, I trust that you sense the communion that we have as a body of believers being united together with Christ as a people. What a great truth that is. But I also hope you also recognize the personal aspect of this, that this is Christ's blood and body for you. That Christ has redeemed you and made you a part of his glorious body. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me oh, the precious precious glorious truth of the gospel for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we are eternally grateful for the truth of the gospel, for the gift of salvation, for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are thankful for the evidence of the gospel and saving our souls. We're thankful for the impact of the gospel that we are in union with Christ and share the blessings of Christ. Oh God, might these things move us deeply each time we come to this table. Lord, as our understanding deepens in the truth behind this table and why you've given it as a sign of the covenant, why you've given it to your people to remind us time and time and time again to be grateful to show forth your death until you come the promises of all those things oh God might they settle deep in our souls and Lord might this table always be one of those major elements of our worship of you Father I thank you for each one here today it is my joy to celebrate this with part of my family today oh God how we are grateful for your work in our lives and our families. Lord, those truths that bind us together far more deeply than anything. And so, Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and raise our voices in response. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me, I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, 
don't think I'll ever sing that song. I don't think of that, dear brother. Let us hear one last time from the word of God. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness 